preacher is searching for an illustration for a sermon, then one great place to go is Looney Tunes. Looney Tunes has some of the best sermon illustrations because they do such a good job of poking fun at so many of the silly, crazy things that and we believe. Take, for example, the uh, 1963 Bugs Bunny cartoon, Transylvania 65000. Who remembers Transylvania 65000? You might remember it when I put the... There, there you go, brother. There's a still shot uh, from Transylvania 65000. The whole... Uh, the whole context of the cartoon was this. Bugs Bunny is on vacation and he's lost. That happens a bunch of times, right? He's lost. He's looking for Pittsburgh. But instead of Pennsylvania, he ends up in Transylvania, right? And you see how Bugs travels. You know, he always digs that little hole just under the surface of the ground and you see it bulging up as he's moving along. Well, he pops up out of the hole in Transylvania. And he looks up and there's a two-headed vulture on a limb right above him named uh, Agatha and Emily, I think. He asks them for directions to Pittsburgh. They don't have a clue what he's talking about, but they think that he looks very tasty. Well, he ends up in this big old castle with this vampire named Count Blood Count. And he goes into the, the old castle seeking a telephone to call his travel agent. The uh, vampire, of course, doesn't know what he's talking about, but he also thinks Bugs looks rather tasty. So he wants to get Bugs to stay. He convinces him to stay overnight, to rest overnight, because, as he said, rest is good for the blood, in his vampire accent. So he convinces Bugs to stay overnight. He goes into a room and he gets in the bed, but he can't go to sleep. So Bugs pulls a book off the shelf about magic words and phrases. And he's kind of skeptical about this, but he's reading it anyway. And then later on, he still can't sleep, so he says he's going to go and look for a glass of water. So he's wandering through the castle looking for a glass of water. Meanwhile, the vampire sneaks up behind him and is towering up over him. Bugs is walking along and he's kind of singing a song and he's sort of substituting some of the magic words and phrases that he's just learned from this book. And he says, abracadabra. And the vampire turns into a bat. Bugs turns around and sees him. He thinks he's a big mosquito, swats him. And then the bat, all dizzy and disoriented and stunned, sort of, stumbles out the window, and then Bugs continues on, still singing, and then Hocus Pocus, bat back into a vampire, and he falls down into the water. Well, later on, Bugs and the vampire are sort of having a duel of magic words and phrases. And the vampire, Count Blood Count, towers up over Bugs, and he says, I am a vampire. And Bugs says, Abracadabra, I'm an umpire. And he turns himself into a baseball umpire. And then the count says, Hocus Pocus, I am a bat. And Bugs says, Hocus Pocus, I'm a bat too. And he turns himself into a baseball bat and clunks the bat on the head. Well, then Bugs just starts mixing up all these words and phrases. He says, Abracapocus and Hocus Cadabra. And he turns the, the count into all kinds of mixtures of body parts and everything. And then he says, Newport News, turns him into a witch. And then he says, Walla Walla Washington, turns him into a another two-headed vulture. So, just good fun, poking fun at some of the crazy things that we believe. That words and phrases actually have power over reality or over the supernatural. Many people believe this even today. You'd be amazed at how this permeates even our culture today. The belief that certain words and phrases can affect reality. Um, Just an example... 
What do you do when somebody sneezes? You say, bless you, right? Why do you do that? Or gesundheit. Why do you say bless you or gesundheit when somebody sneezes? You don't say anything when they cough or blow their nose. Why do we feel like we have to say something when somebody sneezes? Well, that goes back to the Middle Ages, a belief that people used to have that when you sneezed, your heart stopped for just a moment. And during that moment that your heart was stopped, it gave just a momentary opportunity for a demon to enter into you. Crazy, right? And so they would say, bless you, or gesundheit, to to ward off the evil spirits as though just that phrase would ward off evil spirits. Now, I'm not implying that when you say bless you, you actually believe that. You're just being polite. But you see how that permeates our life today. This belief that words and phrases have power over reality. Well, we're going to turn today to a passage of Scripture in which people, believe it or not, in Paul's time, also believe the same sort of thing. They believe that words and phrases had power over reality. We're in Acts chapter 19. And you remember where we are at this point. Paul has just left Corinth. He spent quite a bit of time here in Corinth ministering uh, there. Gallio has, has provided him safety as he's ministered, and he's been in Corinth for quite a while. He's now left Corinth, and he's traveled to Jerusalem by way of Antioch and back to Antioch. Aquila and Priscilla left with him. He left them in Ephesus. Now, they're ministering for the gospel there in Ephesus. Meanwhile, Paul goes back to Jerusalem and back to Antioch, back to his sending church, and he's now been sent out on his third missionary journey. And he travels by way of the region of Galatia, a journey over land by foot of 500 to 700 miles, to finally reach Ephesus. Now, meanwhile, while Paul has been gone from Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla have been ministering here in Ephesus, and Luke has shown us these two stories that are put together because they're both about the same thing. They're both about people that have a lot of religion, but they're missing a key ingredient. The first one was Apollos. Apollos comes. He's a good Jew from Egypt. He he believes in the one true God. He believes in the Scriptures. He's learned, learned the Scriptures and knowledgeable in the Scriptures. However, he's missing a key ingredient. He's missing the cross and the resurrection, the atonement of Jesus. He's missing the Gospel. He's preaching basically the message of John the Baptist. Repent, for the Messiah is coming and the Messiah is Jesus. But he's missing the whole Gospel part. So Aquila and Priscilla, they take him aside, probably into their home. They explain to him the gospel. They tell him of the cross and the empty tomb and all of this. He believes he's converted. And then we see Apollos' ministry then becomes powerful. Being filled by the Spirit, he becomes effective at what he's saying. He becomes a powerful force. He goes back to Corinth and becomes um, just a really powerful force for the gospel there in Corinth. And then the second story that teaches the same thing is this story of these twelve disciples. Paul now arrives in Ephesus and he finds these 12 disciples, disciples of John the Baptist, we assume. Likewise, they too have religion, they love God, they believe the Scriptures, yet they're missing a key ingredient, they're missing the Gospel, they're missing the Holy Spirit. Paul realizes this, tells them of the cross, tells them of the atonement, they believe, they're converted, filled with the Spirit, they show evidence of all of that. Two stories put together where Luke is showing us the necessary need for the missing ingredient, the ingredient of the Gospel, the message of the Gospel, the bloody cross, the empty tomb, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, all these things. And so those two stories teach us that. Today we come to a third story that has the same element to it. It's also a story of people who have a lot of religion, but they're missing the key ingredient. We've separated this one out from the other two because this one has a much different ending. So we pick up here in Acts chapter 19, and we begin in verse 8. 
beginning in verse 8, we read that Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So Paul goes about his normal practice, which was to go to the synagogue first and begin reasoning with people in the synagogue. They're already in the synagogue, so they're already people that are seeking God. They already have a certain amount of beliefs, the belief that there is one God and He's a Creator God and He wrote the Scriptures and these sorts of things. So Paul is beginning at the logical place with the Jews there in the synagogue. And he spends, uh, we're told, uh, quite a bit of time, three months, which is more time than he's usually spent in the synagogues, because they seem to be very open to what he's saying. He's reasoning with them and persuading them. So Paul's not just standing up and preaching. He's doing just like he did in Thessalonica. He doesn't just stand up and preach it. He reasons with them. He gets to know them. He engages them in conversations. He meets them where they are. He, he receives their questions and gives them good answers to their questions from the Scriptures, just like we saw him do in Thessalonica. Everyone, when they hear the Gospel, will have objections to that. Good, there are good answers in the Scriptures, and so what Paul is doing is he's receiving their questions, hearing where their sticking points are, meeting them in the Scriptures and showing them. Now, their objections would have been the objection to a suffering Messiah. He's in the synagogue, so he's speaking to Jews. They don't have a problem with the fact that there's one God. They don't have a problem with the fact that He wrote a Bible to us. They don't have a problem with the fact that man is sinful and we need the redemption of God. They don't have a problem with any of that. But they have a problem with the idea of a suffering Messiah. Messiah who would suffer and die. So just like He did in Thessalonica, He shows them from the Scriptures why it was necessary for the, for the Christ to suffer and to die. He reasons with them. He persuades them, speaking boldly. That's one of Luke's favorite phrases to describe the preaching, particularly the preaching of Paul. We go back to Acts chapter 2. Remember Peter and John, how they were preaching boldly, and then they're arrested, they're taken before the council, and meanwhile the believers are praying. And what, they're, what are they praying for? They're praying that God would continue to give them boldness to continue to speak. So that's one of Luke's themes, the bold preaching of Christ. So we see this in verse 8. But then, verse 9, "...but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus." So, we see that perhaps many in the synagogue believed and were converted and were open, but some become stubborn. Now, this is a picture for us of becoming hard to the Gospel. We become hard to the conviction of the Spirit, we become hard to the work of God in our hearts by resisting Him when He convicts us. And He brings conviction to our heart and we resist that, then the next time it's a lot easier. The next time it's a lot easier. And then the next time it's a lot easier. That's called hardening of our hearts. And that's, this is why it is that it is so difficult oftentimes for older people to come to faith in Christ. Because they have sometimes spent a lifetime hardening themselves to the Gospel. And sometimes it, it will take a monumental, a colossal event in their life to soften their hearts because they've hardened themselves. And so this is what's happening. Some of the people, some of the Jews, are becoming stubborn and they're becoming hardened in their disbelief. And it says that um, they continued in their unbelief but then it says they, be, they began speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So that's when Paul withdrew. That's when he withdrew from them. He withdrew from them when they became vocal and they became 
uh, barriers to the faith of others. That's when Paul withdrew. Doesn't mean he gave up on them. Doesn't mean he just sort of uh, left them to Satan. It doesn't mean he stopped praying for them. Doesn't mean he stopped seeking opportunities to love them and witness to them. But it does mean that he got his flock out of there. You see, Paul will write later on to Timothy in both 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. He will write to Timothy and say, it is your responsibility as the shepherd of that flock to protect them from false teaching. To protect them from those things, those teachings that impact their faith in negative ways. And so Paul's doing the same thing here. When they become obstinate, when they become vocal in their disbelief and they become a detraction for the faith of the disciples, he takes the disciples out of that environment and he goes to the hall of Tyrannus and begins reasoning there in the hall of Tyrannus every day. Now, if you look in your Bibles at the end of that word, Tyrannus, you'll see a footnote. And if you go down to the bottom of the, pa- your, the Bible page on which that is uh, written, you'll see this footnote. Your Bible, if you're reading from the uh, ESV translation, it'll read exactly this way. If you're reading another one, it'll be something similar to this. Some manuscripts add from the fifth hour to the tenth, that is, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. What's that all about? Well, has anybody ever been to a Mediterranean country? If you've been to a Mediterranean country, Greece or Italy, any of those places, you'll know that they have this tradition called the siesta. Basically, it goes like this. People begin their day early in the morning, and they will work or do whatever they do until about 11 a.m., and then everything shuts down. It's the siesta. And so from 11 to 4, businesses are closed. You can't get anything done. Everybody just sort of has their leisure time. And then at 4 o'clock, people come back. Businesses open up again. And people will work late in the evening. That's called the siesta. Sounds like a pretty good idea to me. Maybe we should adopt that here. But this is the siesta. It's still true to this day. But in Paul's day as well, this is how the people in the Mediterranean area lived. They would begin their day early, work till 11, knock off in the heat of the day, And then when the cool of the day returned, they would go back to work and work into the evening. And so this is what Paul is doing. In the morning, he and probably Aquila and Priscilla are working at making tents, leather working, to earn their keep, probably to pay for the the rent of the place that they're using to preach about Jesus, the Hall of Tyrannus. But then 11 o'clock would come and everybody else would kick off and sort of have their leisure time. Meanwhile, Paul would then begin his daily work for the gospel. And he would then reason for three or four or five hours in the hall of Tyrannus, preaching Jesus, reasoning, arguing from the scriptures, uh, building relationships with people. He would do this for three or four or five hours, and then he'd go back to work with Aquila and Priscilla and work into the evening. This was Paul's ske- schedule, Luke tells us, daily, six days a week, 52 weeks a year, for a couple of years. And so, what we should notice from this is Paul's gospel work ethic. Last week we noticed that Paul walked on this third missionary journey a distance of anywhere from 1,000 to 1,500 miles on foot in order to strengthen the churches. But we see this sort of description of Paul all over the place. For example, in your sermon notes, you'll see 2 Corinthians 11. Paul says, "...in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food, etc." 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. We worked night and day so that you didn't have to financially support us. And while we weren't working, 
That's when we were ministering for the gospel. Paul had a tremendous gospel work ethic. He worked tirelessly for the gospel. Reminds us, by the way, of Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus who didn't seem to have two minutes to rub together because He was so consumed with the work of the kingdom. Literally, He would be so physically tired that He could fall into a deep sleep on a small boat in a storm because He was tirelessly working for the gospel. He had to get up in the middle of the nights in order to have His prayer time with the Father because He worked so tireless, tirelessly for the gospel. Now, we apply ourselves, I think, this way. Most of us probably don't have any difficulty filling up our time. Most of us probably feel like our schedules are just about as full as they could get. And so the last thing we want to hear is someone telling us that we need to devote more time to the work of the gospel. Here's the problem. Many of us have our time filled up with things that have little eternal significance. See, there are all kinds of things, thousands of things in your life that will fill up your time and will drain your energy. Every once in a while I hear somebody talk about passing the time. I'm like, what, is, what does passing the time mean? Because I don't have any time that needs to be passed. And most of us are that same way. We don't need anything to fill up our time or take our energy. The problem sometimes becomes that we have devoted so much time to things that are not eternally significant that then to squeeze in work for the Gospel seems like something overwhelming to us. Let me just encourage you today to look very honestly at your schedules. Look very honestly at what takes your time and what requires your energy. And ask yourself some hard questions about how much of that has eternal significance and how much of it does not. And do I need to extract from my schedule some of the things that are not eternally significant? They may not be bad, but they're not eternally significant in order to free up some more time for the Gospel. Because you know what? We hear this, and we automatically balance it with things like the fourth commandment and the teaching of Scripture that our bodies are a temple for God and we are to care for our bodies, which means, among other things, giving them rest. And we understand that. But sometimes, in order to labor for the Gospel, we must free up some other things so that we have the time and the energy to do as Paul is showing us to do here, as Jesus showed us to do as well. Let me just encourage you to do that, to look at your schedule very honestly. We see Paul here doing this for a couple of years, just laboring all that he can labor for the Gospel. He knows the time is short. He knows that he has an audience with the Ephesians here, and so he's making the most of it. And so he reasons daily in the hall of Tyrannus. In verse 10, we see the result of this. It appears that this was a very effective strategy for Paul. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Wow. I would call that effective. Now, I don't know if when Luke says all the residents of Asia, I doubt he literally means every single human being living in Asia at the time probably trying to communicate to us is just an idea of overwhelming success that Paul had. Now, how did Paul have such a success? Well, I think he probably followed the model of Jesus. Places like Mark 6 or Matthew 10 or Luke 9 where Jesus leads people to faith, brings people to faith, and then equips them and then sends them out. I think that's probably what Paul is doing here. He is an instrument for the conversion of unbelievers, and as they are converted, he's equipping them 
And they're being sent out into these regions. Because during this time, this two years of Paul's life was, was probably the most productive time of his life for the Gospel. During this time, he did a lot of writing. He wrote 1 Corinthians, he wrote Galatians, probably some others as well. Um, during this time, the, of course, the church of Ephesus was founded, as well as the church of Colossus, as well as all seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. This was the same time that Paul would make that painful journey to Corinth. Remember on Sunday nights we're talking about 2 Corinthians. We keep talking about that really difficult journey that Paul made to Corinth. Paul made that during this time. This was the time of the Jerusalem famine when, when Paul collected the offering. So much is going on in this time. This is an extremely productive period of time for the early church and for Paul in particular. And so all the residents of Asia and the, heard the word of the Lord. Revival has broken out. Both Jews and Greeks. And then we come to verse 11. This begins, perhaps, I think one of the more humorous sections of our Bibles, certainly one of the more humorous sections of Acts. You're all familiar with the story of the sons of Sceva. Beginning verse 11, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Extraordinary. Verse 12, So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Wow! So, the handkerchiefs and the aprons of Paul seem to have such healing power and such demon exercising power that literally people are taking his handkerchiefs and his aprons and these miracles are being performed at the hands of those things or, or by the touching of those things. Truly things that God is doing during this time. Now as we've talked about before, we know that Acts is a transitional period in human history, a transitional period in the church history. And so we don't read about everything that happens in the story of Acts thinking, oh, well, that should be normal for today too. Because some of this is not. A lot of it is just not normal, the normal, the way, that, the normal way that God works. Even Luke says God is doing extraordinary things during this time. You know, sometimes I think we read our Bibles and sometimes we, we, we um, have this mistaken belief that all throughout the Bible, God's just working miracles all over the place. And He's not. The reality is, there's only three periods in human history in which God was regularly and consistently active with miraculous activity. Only three. The time of Moses, the time of Elijah and Elisha, and the time of Jesus and the apostles. Those are the only three times in which God consistently and regularly acted in miraculous ways. And so this is one of those times, and even among that time, Luke says this is an extraordinary time of God's activity. Again, this is a time when the church did not have the New Testament. And so God is authenticating Paul's message through the miraculous events that are taking place, through the handkerchiefs and the aprons. Which, by the way, this word handkerchief, um, the root of that word means uh, sweat. So what that was is it was literally a sweat cloth. Paul would use, a, he would have some sort of cloth that he would wipe the sweat from his face or from his hands as he was working. And this apron that he talks about that would have been Paul's work apron, a thick leather apron that he, he was working with leather and tents and whatnot. Uh, you may have seen, um, if, you've, if you've seen a farrier shoe horses, you'll know that they usually wear a thick leather apron or a blacksmith will sometimes wear a thick leather apron. Kind of what Paul was, uh, what Luke was talking about here. So notice with me just the regular down-to-earth things that God chooses to use when He decides to perform miraculous activity. He uses a sweat cloth and a work apron, probably dirty, greasy work apron. 
Those are the instruments that God chooses to use when He decides to work in miraculous ways. Kind of like the staff of Moses. Or the jawbone of a donkey in the hands of Samson. This is the way of God, folks. When God decides to perform miraculous activities, He doesn't choose a king's crown or a golden scepter. He chooses a dirty, sweaty, stinky handkerchief. This teaches us, folks, of ourselves. Because when God chooses to work in the world among sinners, He doesn't choose kings and royalty. He chooses jars of clay. This is what Paul means when he's writing in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7. That God has placed His Gospel into jars of clay. Brittle, fragile, ordinary, plain people. Why? Because He doesn't want the container to be glorified. He wants Himself to be glorified. This is why He chooses a sweat rag and a work apron. Because He doesn't want us to worship a handkerchief. He wants us to worship the God who can use anything. So, this miraculous activity is taking place and it has a huge effect on people. Those who believe, but it also has an effect on those who don't believe. Look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish experts undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name or by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Magic words and phrases. These Jewish exorcists They're kind of cut from the same cloth as Apollos and the twelve disciples. They've got religion, but they're missing a real key ingredient. They're missing relationship with Jesus Christ, of course. Now these exorcists, it was a profession in these days that they would go around exercising. It doesn't sound right when I say it that way. They would go around casting out demons, to put it that way. Casting out demons from people. And here's how they believed it happened. It was very simple. In order to cast a demon out, all you needed to do was to know the name of a god or a demon or a spirit who was more powerful than the one who was possessing the person. All it was to it. It had nothing to do with knowing the god of power, with relationship, had nothing to do with faith or trust, nothing to do with the work of the kingdom of God on earth, had everything to do with simply knowing the name of a god, a spirit, or a demon who was more powerful than the one that was possessing the person. Again, abracapocus. Just say the right word. Just repeat the right phrase. And as long as the God whom you've called upon is more powerful than this one, the demon will be cast out. So these Jewish exorcists, they see that Paul is doing some pretty incredible things. And they keep hearing him talk about Jesus. So they go and they're going to invoke the name of Jesus to cast out this demon from, uh, from this poor fellow. And as seven of them go, verse, verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Kind of hard not to chuckle at that. Isn't it? That's one of the more humorous moments in the story of Acts. Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, who are you again? I like to imagine the look on their faces when the demon said that to them. Seven, they've ganged up on him. They've got him outnumbered seven to one. And they're expecting him to be cast out because they call upon this name of Jesus. And he answers them this way. And I expect a, a look of shock, terror, surprise, even embarrassment. You know, it's kind of embarrassing 
when you know somebody but they don't know you. You've been in those situations where you recognize somebody, you remember somebody but they don't remember you. Um, just this, this past week, a couple of days ago, I was in Starbucks coffee, ran into Cornelius Muller. Remember Cornelius Muller? He was, you remember him, he was the fellow that came here January of last year with the movie Brother's Keeper. He made the movie, wrote it, starred in it. It was about his life. Uh, you remember his brother, his little brother, domestic violence, suicide, all that. Well, I saw him in Starbucks. And of course I recognize him because he's in the movie. You think he knows me? <laughs> know me from, from Adam. So um, one of those situations where you know somebody, but they don't know you. It's a little bit humbling. Um, a couple weeks ago now, I think we were, it was, we were in Arizona, and uh, we, we hooked up with some folks there that, that we knew from, from uh, Colorado, and we remembered a whole lot more about them than they remembered about us. It's a little bit humbling, you know, when you remember their, them, but they don't remember you. So, it's kind of the same thing here. Jesus we know, Paul we recognize. Who are you again? Makes us ask ourselves the question, doesn't it? Would demons recognize me? Would the demons recognize me? Now that's not a question designed to, to probe into your supernatural power. How many demons have you cast out? Do the demons shake when they hear your name? That's not what that question is about at all. Because you see, the demons all know Jesus. James 2 tells us that they know that God is one and they shudder. Jesus regularly cast out demons that knew exactly who He was. So the demons know who Jesus is. The question is, when they see you, will they see Jesus? Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ in such a way that when you would in, theoretically encounter a demon, would they recognize Christ? The sons of Sceva don't know Jesus. And so naturally the demons don't recognize them. Who are you again? Jesus we know. Paul we recognize. Who are you? So, then verse 16, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Again, it's just hard to not chuckle at this. You can, you can see the picture here of seven sons of Sceva, and the one demon-possessed man jumps on them, apparently rips off their clothes, and they're lucky to get out the door alive. Which, which is consistent, by the way, with some of the other representations of demon possession that we find in the Scriptures. Um, superhuman strength. Remember the story in Mark 5 of the man who's possessed by the demon legion, and they kept trying to, to uh, restrain him with chains, but he kept breaking the chains. Superhuman strength. So this man jumps on them, <clears throat> excuse me, jumps on them, they barely get out with their lives, and they take off running. What we should see from this is this, and this is very important. As humorous as this story is, it's teaching us a very profound lesson. It's teaching us the danger of trying to invoke the power of Jesus without knowing Jesus. That's what they're doing. They're trying to invoke the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, without knowing Jesus. And folks, I'm not suggesting that you are going around in your lives trying to cast out demons or anything like that. But what I am saying is that the sons of Sceva are all around People who try to invoke the power of Jesus without knowing Jesus. People who try to invoke upon their lives
the blessings of Jesus, the anointing of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, whatever, fill in anything there. People who are trying to invoke that on their lives without actually knowing Him. And those folks, sadly, are all around us. When God's people gather together, they're nowhere to be found. Yet when life backs them into a corner, oh Jesus, Jesus, we cry out to You now. When they get the phone call in the middle of the night from the son or the daughter, when they get the doctor's report, when when uh, get the notice from their boss that their position is being phased out, when life backs them into, into a corner, then they attempt to invoke upon their lives the power of Jesus without actually knowing Jesus. That's exactly what the sons of Sceva are doing. And we see how God reacted. Folks, the Scriptures teach us all over the place of what is available to those who know Jesus. 1 John 4, 4, Greater is He who is in me than he who is in the world. Or, or Romans 8, 31, uh, how, how could we be separated from the love of God? The Scriptures are so rich teaching of what, what we are connected to, what we are plugged into, what is ours when we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But when it speaks of those who are outside of Christ, it speaks of, of only judgment and damnation and wrath. Here are seven individuals outside of Christ trying to invoke upon their lives the blessings of knowing Christ when they don't really know Him. And so we see how God reacts. God allows this demon to master them, to overpower them. They barely get out with their lives. Verse 17, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. You're not going to keep that news undercover. Um, that word spread like wildfire, and probably the church was just chuckling at them about the same as we're chuckling at them. So this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, but let's now look at the effect that this has. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That's the first effect that this had. This uh, incident with the sons of Sceva affected two groups of people, and the first group of people was the church. The church, those who knew God, saw what happened, and fear fell upon them. Fear fell upon them, and the name of God was extolled. That reminds us, doesn't it, of Ananias and Sapphira back in Acts chapter 5, when, when they dropped dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. Fear fell upon the church, and the name of the Lord uh, progressed. The kingdom of God progressed. And so we see the same sort of thing here. Those who know God, fear falls upon them. Uh, the name of Jesus was extolled. Verse 18, and many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought them their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Wow. Now all this makes sense, doesn't it? It all makes sense. The handkerchief, the apron... God is working in these unusual ways here because the Ephesian believers were covered up with the occult and with practices of magic and magic words and phrases and witchcraft. They were covered up with that. That was their sin. 
Even those who have believed and been converted and come into the church, even they are still having that sin in their lives. They're still holding on to it because it's a process, isn't it? When we come to faith in Jesus, we don't automatically jettison all of our sins. It's a process. Just like the hardening process of verse 9. It's a process. And these Ephesian believers, Luke is talking about the church, they became convicted of the fact that they were still enslaved the sin of magic and witchcraft and, and the occult and all of this. And so they come confessing that sin, bringing these books, burning the books. Luke even tells us the value of all the books that were burned. Let's notice from their reaction what Luke is trying to tell us. Luke, first of all, is not trying to tell us that as Christians we must go around burning books. We're not, you're not supposed to go look on your shelves and find all the books on there that you don't think you should have and go and put them in a big bonfire and burn them. That's not what Luke is telling us. Luke is teaching us of a specific moment, a definitive, a definitive time in which people of God recognize sin within them and visibly turned from it. Visibly repented and turned from that sin, a moment in time in which they came under the spiritual conviction of remaining sin in them. And they knew Jesus, though they, though they had confessed and repented of sin and belonged to Him, they had the new heart, there was still remaining in them, and this is a moment of recognition and confession and repentance and turning from that. The Thessalonians had to have the same moment in, uh, in your sermon notes, 1 Thessalonians 1. The Thessalonians' problem was with idols. And Paul said they had to turn from those idols to turn from Jesus. The Ephesians' problem was magic and the occult. And they had even Christians had all these books about magics, which had magic words and phrases and all these things in there that they believed in, that they placed stock in. And even though they were in Christ, they were still holding on to that. They had to turn from that. Which, by the way, doesn't this make Ephesians 6 make all the sense in the world now? Ephesians 6, Paul's writing to the same church. And what's Ephesians 6 about? It's, a, it's the spiritual warfare passage. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Folks, the Ephesians would have gotten that. They would have resonated with that because that was them. They were the ones who knew better than anybody that this world of principalities and powers, it's real, and we used to belong to it. Now we belong to a greater principality. The, the, the Ephesians would have gotten that so well, which is why Paul wrote it to them. You see, they were enslaved with this particular sin, and they had to turn from it. Notice how they turned from it. By burning their books. By bringing all their books and having them burned. Two things that we should see from this. First of all, turn from your sin something. Luke tells us it costs 50,000 pieces of silver altogether. I have no idea what that means in today's values because we don't know how big the piece of silver was. But what Luke is trying to tell us is this was a very expensive thing. Books in the ancient world were very expensive. And so to burn all these books cost the Ephesian believers something. Folks, when you turn from sin, it will cost you something. Probably financially, uh, probably in your reputation, your status... It will cost you something. Turning from sin in this life does not bring earthly benefit. It brings earthly cost. But notice how they also burn the books. Again, Luke is not saying to us that we need to 
purge all of our bookshelves to make sure there's no unacceptable book in there. What he's saying to us is that these people recognize that those books were a connection to the old sin in which they used to live and they needed to separate themselves definitively and once and for all in a way that they could not go back to. They needed to drive a stake in the ground, proverbial, proverbial, you know what I mean. They had to drive a stake in the ground and separate themselves definitively from who they are now and the sin that they used to be. And so they burned those books. Do you think they could have sold them? I think there was a market for them in Ephesus. We just noted how much they were worth. Do you think they could have sold them and put the money in the church treasury? That was the other thing they did. They separated their sin themselves from a sin in a way in which they would not profit from it and they would not contribute to the sin of others. I used to know someone, a Christian, who had struggled with the sin of pornography. And he had a collection of Playboy magazines. In those days, pornography was still in print and you still had to buy it. So he had a collection of Playboy magazines. Well, he became convicted of this and he wanted to get rid of those and he tried to sell them. Folks, that's not repentance. Because A, it didn't cost him anything. In fact, he may have even profited from it. But secondly, and more importantly, he would have been contributing to the sin of others in order to free himself from that sin. Jesus never frees us from sin at the expense of other humans. He only does it at His own expense. He never frees us from sin and then casts that sin into somebody else. He casts the demons into the pigs. And so when we repent, it must cost us something. When we turn from that sin, it costs us something, but we do it in a way that does not facilitate the sin of others. We do it in a way that's definitive, that's public, that's permanent. We separate ourselves from that. That's what the Ephesian believers do here. Now the second group of people, real quickly, for us to see that this had an impact on was not the church, but everybody around the church. Verse 20, So the Word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Folks, when God's people are convicted of sin and turn from it, the world notices. When God's people are convicted of sin and turn from it, the world takes notice. We all know 2 Chronicles 7.14, right? If my people who are called by my name will turn from their sin and seek my face... That's how revival is initiated when God's people turn from their sin and God's people repent and turn back. Folks, revival is not when ungodly people forsake their sin. Revival is when God's people forsake their sin.